Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Alongside Tom Keane in the city of London, I'm Jonathan Farrow. Good morning to you, Mr. Keane. Oh, good morning, John Farrell. Just exciting last night, Tottenham opening that gorgeous new stadium. Did you make it over? I did not make it over, but we watched every moment. Did Glued you? Glued to it. Did you enjoy every it. moment, too? I, Mr. Sun came down and put the ball in the net, and it was very there exciting. You, go. you won't be coming back, will you? No, I, I was here with our editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, and he made clear that you know the idea of going from Liverpool and down to see the Tots play is a good thing. You was, could just do a football tour for the rest meanwhile, of the Meanwhile, there was Brexit. And it's sort of a it's a numbing day, John. Not quiet day, but everybody's numb. Roger Boodle was wonderful, a Brexiteer, a Leave guy, writing for the Telegraph once a week of Capital Economics. And Roger was really ferocious about the crisis this is. So where are we now, and what does the next twenty four hours bring, Tom? I think the mystery is the support that Mr. Corbyn will have. I think there was pleasantries yesterday. Uh, clearly, the Tories, the Conservatives, are very upset. But the next step is really to see what actually happens in discussions today. It looks like Parliament moving towards blocking a no-deal Brexit. I imagine everybody else would come along with that. And then it's the what next. One of the solutions would be to have James Diamond come over and solve Brexit. You want Jamie Diamond to solve Brexit? It was page 28 of his 23-page letter. I think he's busy over at J.P. Morgan for the next five years. Well, he's busy over at J.P. Morgan. And, of course, uh, folks, Mr. Diamond out with, I'm going to guess, 23 pages of detail on the financial performance of J.P. Morgan, but also, as usual, uh, James Diamond on the American experiment, political and economic experiment, and also on the view forward. We have with us this morning Joachim Fells of PIMCO. Just thrilled to have him for this extended time in our London studios today. And Joachim, I want to go to one clear financial headline, punditry headline for Mr. Diamond. Yield curve inversion not giving same signal as in past. You've addressed this. What do we do with yield curves uh, day in and day out of, of this pending <laughs> recession? Well, Tom, I think we have to take the yield curve very seriously, right? There were a lot of voices around uh, in the, the last time the yield curve inverted in the previous cycle that things were different, that it was foreign buying that was depressing the long end. That's certainly true. But the issue is if the yield curve stays inverted for longer and, you know, to be a reliable recession signal, it has to stay inverted for at least three months. But if that happens, then uh, it becomes less and less attractive for banks to lend, Right, They borrow short, they mm-hmm. lend long. So that's the reason why the yield curve not only predicts recessions, right. but also causes recessions. One of the hallmarks of Jakob Phil's work is the x-axis, the timeline of all these things we speak about every day. And as you mentioned, the idea of a chronic inverted yield curve, the overlap now versus 2016 or other periods, is we've also had chronic negative interest rates. How chronic are our chronic negative interest rates? Well, they seem to be chronic. You know, we've got a a huge part of the uh, global bond universe trading at negative yields. And there are really two factors behind that. One is a fundamental factor, which is the global saving glut and the demand for safe assets, um, which is partly caused by demographics, partly caused by the fact that more and more of the savers in this world sit in emerging market countries where people have rising incomes and they're looking for a safe asset. 
the other explanation for the negative interest rates is obviously what central banks are doing. So if you put the two things together, I think we better get right. used to an environment where we, we, we are looking at negative yields for a long time. Jakob Fels, it's important we bring in John Farrell because he's in tight preparation for the real yield. Jakob, you can see it Fridays. Uh, on Bloomberg Yakim is uh, well, well aware on what, on what time it is. I know. Oh, so. yes. I'm, I'm privileged to speak to him, John. <laughs> Let's talk about the distortions working in uh, fixed income globally right now. Euro investment grade yields, I think, are about 0.8% at the moment. I think 16% of the Euro credit universe right now carries a negative yield. Yes, that's corporate debt with a negative yield. What does PIMCO tell clients about where you should tilt your portfolio in that environment? Well, look, in this environment, it is really, really difficult to to uh, find yield at a reasonable price. I think that's that's what we're trying to do for our clients. So we think the U.S. fixed income universe is still attractive. The problem is for European and also for Japanese investors, the, the currency hedging costs are excessive. Um, and this is because the short rate differential is so wide. So if you want, as a European investor, if you invest in U.S. fixed income, and you want to hedge your currency exposure, then you're actually getting a very, you know, after hedging, you're still getting a very low yield. So there's almost no escape from the low yields. And um, our focus is really on the safer parts of the credit spectrum. We do worry about the fact that leverage in uh, large parts of the corporate universe, including uh, investment grade, has gone up so much and uh, the quality of the investment-grade universe has deteriorated. So that's why we actually recommend to be underweight corporate credit in this environment. So just on the whole, are you becoming increasingly defensive? Yes, uh, that's true. We've been uh, uh, going increasingly defensive. We are looking for... Uh, other areas to pick up yields. So we're not sitting on hordes of cash. We think that, for example, agency and non-agency MBS are attractive. We think there are some opportunities in emerging markets uh, where the outlook has improved. Uh, we're just cautious on the uh, on, on corporate credit per se, which is a very crowded trade and where liquidity can uh, ease up, uh, where liquidity can tighten, yeah. excuse me, can <clears throat> tighten very strongly um, if you get a yeah. sell-off. John, can I rip up the script? Of course you can. This is really important. I'm going to make a joke, but it's deadly serious. Uh, yet last night, John, at Tottenham Stadium, the Tot Stadium, it's a cashless stadium. I mean, they've overtly said... We're a cashless stadium. And Jakob Fels, this goes to Ken Rogoff's magnificent book, The Curse of Cash, in the experiment in Sweden, led by Sweden, I should say, of an essentially cashless society. Is that where we're heading? Are we all going to be like they are at the Tottenham Stadium? Well, I, I don't think cash will go away, Tom. Yes, Sweden has made big strides in that direction. But I think if you were to get in a situation where... You know, interest rates would go even more negative. People would want to go back into cash. So rates are probably not negative enough yet to induce people to use more cash or to hold more cash. But I think that's the situation we would get back get get back into. It's an interesting experiment. Thank you so much, Jacob Fels, with us with Pimco. And just thank you so much for being with us today. It was wonderful, uh, John Farrell, to see Roger Boodle with Jacob Fels on set in the heat of this Brexit uh, debate.
Let's bring in Derek Halpani, shall we? MUFG European Head of Global Markets Research. Derek, let's talk about how price is responding to information. The euro's barely moving on weak data coming out of the eurozone. What's the signal you take from that? Well, I think definitely one of the signals is that you know, technicals can be important and that 112 level has been pretty important and has been uh, indicated in the past as, as, as showing good support. Um, what's behind us? It? It's difficult to kind of pinpoint, although I, I have just written a piece covering the uh, IMF FX reserve data through to the end of last year. And what that shows you once again for the third consecutive quarter is that central banks' appetite for euro is very, very significant. And there's only been one period of time going back covering the IMF data to 1999 when appetite yeah. for buying the euro has been this strong. Well, so what's the why? What's the why? One of support is, is central banks. Sorry? Why? Why, why is this strength there? Well, you know, historically, they've tended to purchase euros when they see long-term value. So whenever you see these periods of heavy buying, it has tended to coincide with uh, a period that has been uh, where you've seen a, a fairly notable drop. Uh, and usually, central banks have been very good at picking bottoms because what has uh, transpired after these periods of strong buying is nearly always a period of euro appreciation. So, Derek, let's talk about that because we had two guests on the program yesterday who were looking to break out of this trading range on euro dollar. Very tight, very narrow after, over the last few mo months. But they expect to break out of that trading range to the downside. Why do you think we can break out of it to the upside? Well, you know, well, first of all, I, I should mention, I mentioned this to Tom earlier, I, I have cut my euro forecasts. We were expecting one, we were forecasting 120 for the end of this year, and I've had to acknowledge that the, the macro situation in Europe has been far weaker than I had anticipated. So I've cut, I've cut our year-end target to 116. So I'm still expecting the euro to move a bit higher, but nothing like what I was anticipating before, and that is down to simply having to acknowledge that the macro situation is, is, um, is a lot weaker. But, you know, I think we're in a situation now where when we talk about relative cyclical support, not just cyclical supports, from a cyclical support perspective, the dollar is in a worse position than it was last year because clearly we're seeing slower macroeconomic data. But when you say relative macro cyclical support, well, you know, nothing really has changed because obviously the, the, the slowdown that we're getting is not just the United States, it's global and it's, uh, I think, in part related to China. Now, we're beginning to see some tentative evidence of at least demand stabilizing in China. And if we get this trade deal, if we move towards a softer Brexit, which I think is clearly the direction of travel, there's a couple of big picture assumptions that fit with some modest recovery in euro from, from current levels. So Derek, if the upside on euro dollar is somewhat limited because of what is happening in the United States, just in terms of the relative change for the US economy, where do I get upside in European markets right now? We talked a little bit earlier on the program about where investment grade euro credit was trading. It's actually pretty tight, about 80 basis points on, on euro debt right now. That's the yield. I'm just wondering where I get my upside. If it's not through credit, if it's limited through the euro, if it's not through equities because we've already had a decent run, where is it, Derek? Well, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an equities analyst or expert, but, you know, I, I, I track relative valuation. And 
all I would say is that you know the the, the period of outperformance of U.S. equities relative to uh, Europe and further afield tells me that the, the the asset pricing is is priced for kind of a, a doom gloom scenario across the world outside of the U.S. and I'm not I'm not convinced I'd be that pessimistic. Yeah. Now again, I go back to the data has been more disappointing than, than than I anticipated. But if if China and we've had a lot of stimulus coming through, and if that starts to roll out in the economic data, yeah. I think the pessimism that's there at the moment should should recede somewhat. I can't afford the next time Arsenal plays at the Tottenham's new stadium, the Tots' new stadium. But Derek Halpenny, uh, you know, I need to make a trade in EM where I actually make some money. Is Brazil the mother of all opportunities right now? Well, again, there's there's doubts there in terms of the the ability to get reform through before Bolsonaro came to power. There was, you know, optimism that he would be able to, to implement pension reform. And uh, and there's some question marks over whether or not that can be achieved. So again, y- you look at where dollar Brazil is traded. And if you have a, a correct view in terms of political yeah. progress, well, then, yeah, there's a, there's a good trade there potentially. But um, it, it's still high risk. I mean, John, do you remember the romantic days where you'd like actually trade foreign exchange to buy the Ferrari? Good times, Tom. I mean, it's just, I'm sure just, uh, someone somewhere still doing that. Well, I don't know. Are they? In this a, a lot of money Derek, can be made but, trade in the range, Derek. I mean, the range has been narrow, well said, tight, yeah. and, and yeah. fairly predictable over the last six months, hasn't it? Uh, yes, and, and again, if you look at if you look at volatility, we still have relatively high vol in in the pound. So if you track volatility for for euro, pounds, any of the other major currencies, pound stands out. But I'm I, I I don't know. I'm beginning to come to the idea that I don't think we're going to get this kind of knee jerk jump in the pound. I I just don't see a moment arriving where suddenly people go ah. Brexit uncertainty, it's gone. Let's buy the pound. We're, we're just not going to get into that situation. So the, the level, the elevated level of volatility, which I can understand at the moment, uh, if we don't yeah. get that kind of big move, mm. then, you know, you could see vols come back and move back towards uh, the other major currencies. Derek, how do you fold the dollar analysis into an equity bull market? I mean, are they two separate worlds or could you actually take a dollar analysis and look at October and December of last year and this mother of all recoveries we've had? Well, one of the reasons why I have a bearish view for the U.S. dollar is I, you know, generally, I think U.S. assets are expensive and the dollar is strong. And going forward, if, as I mentioned earlier, we see some relative change in the extremes about outlooks for Mm -hmm. for U.S. versus the rest of the world, uh, I think that could readjust. But if you look at the monthly treasury capital flow data into the U.S., it's not particularly positive. And there's clearly evidence there of foreign investors' reluctance to go into the U.S. I got an email from uh, uh, a U.S. uh, viewer and listener who's Derek... uh like me, clueless. Culturally, how is Arsenal different from Tottenham in London? Um, well, the, the the kind of the the motto is victory through harmony. That's the Arsenal um, long term motto, and I think that shows. You know, we play attractive football. That's our. That's, our, that's in our genes. <laughs> 
and it's it's uh, it's not in Tottenham's. And we're more sensible. Our our stadium cost three hundred and seventy million pounds. Spurs cost a billion. <laughs> there you go. Careful analysis from 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 uh, Derek Halpenny. Thank you so much for the MEFJ. I like that. What was that victory? In harmony, it's the, it's the North North London rivalry. You know, there's a day called Saint Totteringham's Day, and it's the day when Arsenal fans celebrate the uh, the idea, the fact that Spurs can't catch them in the league anymore. Yeah, because typically in recent history, yeah. at least, Arsenal used to finish above Spurs, but Spurs have a better side now. Yeah. So That's those two cr- sides are sort of fighting for a, for a different trophy at the end of the season. That's amazing how they have the same, nearly the same slogan as Bloomberg Surveillance. Our slogan, for, folks, is surviving through harmony. I'm surviving until 8.35 <laughs> Eastern um, when I leave this radio studio and go over to TV. And your day begins. That I is know. right. Quieter tape today. We'll see where we go. Uh, tomorrow with jobs report. Stay with us tomorrow for all of our coverage of the American labor economy. We're really beginning to focus on this, given all the news flow uh, as well. John Farrell will be in New York, and I will be north of Milan, Italy, at the meetings in Chernobyl. Really looking forward to attend. I've literally spent, folks, a decade finding excuses to not go, and this year Francine Lacroix has dragged me north of Milan. I need a preview right now. So we do go to Milan, and Christina Hooper of Invesco uh, joining us from northern Italy as well. Christina, what is your observation of the Italian economy parachuting into Milan? What, what do you see there as an economist? Well, certainly there is a slowdown underway, and we just saw forecast cut to just 0.1%. But there's also good news uh, coming from Italy, and that is that there is no longer talk about an Intel exit. Um, There is much more consensus around staying within the European Union. So that excludes one very big geopolitical risk, and, uh, and it's more now about growing the Italian economy going forward. As a market strategist, you've got to dovetail in all of this economics. Is there a Christina Hooper optimism about participating in markets, given some of these real economic growth challenges? Well, there's certainly caution there, and caution just suggests selectivity and discernment. But there are opportunities, certainly valuation opportunities that are presented. I also think it's important to point out that typically uh, the Eurozone's fortunes are correlated with a lag to China's fortunes. And one could argue that a lot of the disappointing data we've seen recently, certainly um, the German data that just came out today, can be at least partially attributed to the slowdown in China. Now that we're seeing economic data pick up in China, yeah. that could ultimately funnel through to the Eurozone. And as usual, Ms. Hooper totally nails the debate right now, folks, which is truly a debate of gloom versus you're way wrong. We're out front of an economic recovery. Certainly we saw that from James Diamond today, Christina Hooper, over at a large bank in New York, Mr. Diamond with his annual note. On J.P. Morgan, he really pushed against the recession uh, certitude that's out there. Help Mr. Diamond uh, with that. Why can we be more optimistic than a pending recession? 
Well, I think what he was was just very realistic. Um, I, you know, he was talking about certainly some challenges, Fed uncertainty, German economic slowdown, Brexit, U.S.-China trade war, but there are opportunities in all those. And quite frankly, um, what we've seen from the Fed is not so much uncertainty, I would say, as just an about face. And that's creating a much more accommodative environment, particularly since other central banks are coming along, including the Bank of Canada and the ECB. So this should create an environment that's much more supportive of risk assets going forward and, of course, supportive of the economy as well. Why are equities going up? I mean, we do this macro babble every day, but the fact is there's revenue dynamics, operating income dynamics. I guess there's an earnings gloom out there, but I'm not going to get elevated equities with earnings gloom. Is that the great missed call that we're actually going to generate profits? <laughs> Well, certainly, we're going to see something of an earnings slowdown, but I think it's really very premature and completely um, hyperbole to say we're going into an earnings recession. Um, there are challenges, but there are also profits still being created. And so um, with, uh, you know, with a, a different re-rating, right, we've experienced re-ratings with yields going up that have caused us to scrutinize valuations, but the, the current re-rating, which is lower yeah. rates, has actually made equities look more attractive. If you're just joining us, Christina Hooper with Invesco. She joins us from Milan, Italy uh, this day. What are correlations in the market right now? I love to go equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, and they bounce around. How tightly are they coordinated now? Correlated, I should say. Well, it really depends on the day. Um, but certainly over the last few weeks, what we've seen is really an interesting dichotomy in that equities went up, um, but also there was a flight to, to treasuries, government bonds, and so yields came down. Um, and I think that really suggests a lot of the confusion in markets right now. Um, there are reasons to be optimistic, particularly about risk assets, and we see yeah. that um, evidenced in the stock market. But then there's that underlying fear, especially about a potential right. global slowdown, and that's what we're seeing in yields. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Christina Hooper, maybe I'll see you in the airport here in the next uh, 12 hours. Christina Hooper, of course. That would be great. With, with Invesco, we hope to see her in uh, Milani. As Tom Keen jets off to the Alps, I'm joined in our New York studio by Michael McKee. Michael, of course, covers all things economics for Bloomberg Television and Radio. And Michael, it's interesting, uh, asset manager giant BlackRock recently published a report detailing the physical risk associated with climate change on municipal bonds, commercial real estate, and U.S. utilities. To help us walk us through that story, we welcome Brian Deese. Brian is BlackRock Global Head of Sustainable Investing. He's also a former Obama Senior Advisor on Climate and Energy Policy. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Brian, welcome to Bloomberg. What are the key findings of this report that you guys recently published? Well, there's a couple of them. The first is that uh, investors are underappreciating the physical risks in these three asset classes that are in the market today 
uh, and we believe are not appropriately priced. So if we look at U.S. utilities, for example, you see a, a pervasive impact um, in the wake of these extreme weather events uh, that signals that investors are not fully understanding or fully appreciating these risks. And so that, that, that's, that's point one. The second point is that it matters. There's differences across these different, uh, these different asset classes. So with respect to municipalities, we want to look a lot at what's the local GDP impact in a municipality that affects their resilience to these types of risks. In commercial real estate, we want to look at the actual impact of inundation and wind shear of extreme weather events on individual properties, and that those, those vary a lot depending property by property. So the second, the second implication is investors need to really uh, drill down to the individual asset class level to really understand these risks in a more granular way. Uh, the two question, the two part question here. One is, uh, is there something worse now about uh, individual weather events, uh, uh, winds or forest fires or something like that? Because we've always had those, and they have to be priced. Uh, but the other is, I, I read an interesting story uh, just last night about uh, real estate in Miami and the people who buy the condos on the beaches that are going to be underwater. But they say they're going to be underwater in 30 or 50 years. Now, buy and hold investing is one thing, but 50 years? <laughs> um, do I really need to be concerned right now? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is, is what has changed. Uh, the, the issue really is the frequency and the severity of these events. So we've always had extreme weather events, but what we've seen over the past several years is an uh, a increase in both the frequency of, uh, for example, Atlantic-based hurricanes and the severity, importantly, the, the share of hurricanes that are category five, category four or five. We see the same with extreme rainfall events, um, and we've seen some you know, recent instances of that, including in the, in the Midwest. So from an investment standpoint, the challenge is if you're using backward-looking models that look back and say, what's the probability of this type of event happening over the last 100 years, you're missing this, the recent increase uh, in, the, in the frequency and severity of these events. The second point is really important one, which is what's the time frame of these impacts? And part of the, what we found in this research is that, for example, while something like sea level rise is slow moving and really manifests itself over the next 30 to 50 years, if you own that commercial property on, uh, uh, in South Florida, for example, the biggest risk in the, over the next five to 15 years is not sea level rise, it is the inundation and the flooding that comes from one of these extreme weather events. So uh, when a, a hurricane hits, the flooding that can occur um, or the wind shear that could occur is a, a larger and more immediate risk uh, to your investment than the longer tailed risks associated, for example, with sea level rise. So, Brian, when you say that maybe the market is not properly pricing in these things, how do you measure that? How do you define that? Yeah. Well, this was one of the, the key parts of our research was to try to say, first, can we actually geolocate this physical risk data down to the asset level? And then two, can we ask the question of, is this, are those risks priced or not? We do that differently for different asset classes. So for example, with municipal bonds, we do a, we've done a like-for-like like comparison. So looking at, for example, a place like Jupiter, Florida, uh, that, uh, and a place like Neptune, New Jersey. Similar bond issuances, but very different physical risks. And if you if they if these were priced these risks were priced into the market you would expect to see that in terms of pricing differentials and yields on these bonds, on a like for like comparison across municipalities you really don't see a pricing differential. 
in utilities, we look at we do an event study and we look at the the um, what happens to utility stocks in the wake of these uh, extreme weather events. And we try to say if these if these risks were fully priced into the market, then you would not necessarily see any pricing reaction in the wake of these events. What we see, in fact, is that you see a persistent pricing reaction and a sell off in the wake of these events, which then boomerangs after about 40 days, which indicates that investors are selling off on the headline in part because they aren't fully understanding or able to price these risks uh, uh, into the market. Or, or could it be that they have priced the risks uh, to a certain extent, a certain extent they figure they're not priceable, and then after the hurricane is over, the hurricane is over, and they're not thinking it's going to happen to that asset immediately again, and their turnover is going to be such that why bother uh, taking less because um, the odds are so small that your individual asset's going to be hurt. Well, so the, one of the things that we're excited about, about um, being able to use more granular downscale data to actually measure the physical risk at the asset level is that element that um, seems to the market hard to price or impossible to price is something that we believe better data can actually get us uh, uh, to a better place on. So to the degree that uh, utilities investors are looking and saying, there's an element to this risk that we just think we can't quantify. We think that bringing this type of geolocated downscale data at the asset level and then aggregating it up to the security level build, uh, creates a, a, an additional tool to try to uh, differentiate and say, what is the exposure of uh, you know, a, a particular utility uh, operating in the southwest of the United States versus a utility in California? So, Brian, what's been about 30 seconds? What's been a response to your report? Have you had any pushback from, say, I don't know, climate change deniers or whatever, because there is obviously uh, questions in the marketplace. Sure. Well, it's um, it's out today, and so okay. uh, so that the well a lot of the uh, we'll we'll see a lot of the feedback coming in. I think one key thing for us though is this is really about our investment process and about price market pricing and risk. And so we use what we believe is the best data on weather patterns and frequency and severity of extreme weather events. But our focus is on trying to understand whether and how these issues are priced and how we can build that into our investment models. Brian Deese, thank you so much. Uh, Brian is uh, BlackRock Global Head of Sustainable Investing and former Obama Senior Advisor on Climate and Energy Policy joining us here in our New York studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.